Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Yes, this is your co-host Katie Starr, even though it doesn't sound like it. Dr. Cubit, thanks for coming back to the studio with me today. I am excited to be back and I'll try to talk more so that you can rest your voice. I know, just kind of hitting that tail end of the season, I guess. But so Dr. Cubit, today we're going to discuss the horse's digestive system, the anatomy and function of it, but then also where things can go wrong with it. And so this kind of gets back to some of, I guess, the basics of horse nutrition, but I think it's going to be a really great episode for us to discuss for our listeners. Yes. You know, we talk all the time about people always asking me how to fix a certain problem. And I think it's most important to start with, well, how is that system meant to work? And then we can understand why it fails. We can try to avoid the failure kind of be more proactive about looking after our horses and caring for our horses. But if it does fail, then we know what we're trying to get back to as well. So I think this is a great topic. Right. And so for any of the topics that we cover on the Beyond the Barn podcast, they are more generalized and they're not specific to any individual horse or any specific situation. So just be sure to always work with your veterinarian and nutritionist before making any drastic changes to your horse's feed program. Or you can always reach out to us to talk directly with Dr. Cubit or Dr. Duran on any specifics that you'd like to know more about. So Dr. Cubit, let's start off with the type of digestive system that a horse has. How is it different from cattle, llamas, or any other livestock or animals? This is interesting. Horses are what we call hindgut fermenters. And if you use the same terminology to describe a cow or a llama, they are foregut fermenters. So you think about all the fiber that these animals consume has to get fermented or digested somewhere. And in the cow, it's right at the very beginning in that four-chambered stomach, the rumen, and all of the digestion occurs there. In the llama, the stomach in the beginning has three compartments. But the horse, all of that fiber fermentation occurs in the back end of their digestive system. So it makes a difference, especially when we're thinking about adding kind of digestive aids to the different digestive systems. If you're adding a digestive aid to a cow, well, literally they've got to swallow it and it's there. When you're adding something to a horse, they've got to swallow it. It's got to get through the acid in the stomach, the enzymes in the small intestine, and make it to the hindgut. So there are some of the kind of very basic differences between the two. And kind of the unique thing about horses as well is the fact that so cattle or other ruminants can regurgitate their food, but horses can't do that, right? No, they absolutely cannot. Now, there's a bit of a myth that a horse will overeat or eat certain things and it will expand in the stomach and it will explode their stomach coming from that fact that horses cannot regurgitate. You know, the sphincter coming from the esophagus down into the stomach is a one-way valve and it really doesn't turn around and go back. Like in the in the cow, it will open up and allow them to regurgitate their food and then they chew on that. 
swallow it and chew on that, just like a cat or a dog has that as well. But the horse, it's a one-way, should be a one-way valve. And their stomach will not explode, though, if they eat certain foods that might expand. The stomach is adapted to that one-way valve, so it will just flow out the other side fast if there's too much in there. Or- okay. And so the mouth is the starting point of digestion for a horse, any animal for that matter. But can you share how horses use their teeth to break up their food? Yes. And so you're 100% right. The teeth in the mouth are the first part of the digestive system. And in the horse, they have those front teeth that kind of, especially when they're eating grass, it's why horses will really ruin a pasture versus cattle. And they nip, nip that grass off and they rip it out from the roots versus kind of wrapping their tongue around it like a cow. And so they can they can graze pastures really, really short. And then their bottom jaw is going to work in a circular motion and it's going to grind that food and it's going to mix it with saliva and saliva's got some enzymes in it. And that kind of process of grinding and mixing with saliva is mastication. And then they're going to swallow that food. That's how it happens in the horse, but it's also really important knowing that that bottom jaw works in a circular motion versus up and down is that you have your horse's teeth floated regularly because if there are little hooks or sharp things hanging down, it will impede that circular grinding motion. So when I say circular, I know that it sweeps around and then grinds across the top surfaces of the teeth, but if there's a little hook there, it's going to get stuck and it'll stop that even grinding We also know that when they're eating long stem hay, that jaw sweep is much wider. And so it takes them a lot longer to chew long stem hay. And so the mastication and they're mixing it with more saliva and it slows down rate of intake. When they're eating anything short, be it grain or pellets or cubes, that jaw sweep is much choppier, much faster. And so there's less time to mix saliva in. And what are some signs that a horse may have some issues with their teeth? Yeah, one of the classic signs is you just look under the feed bucket and they're what we call quids, little balls of kind of half chewed up food mixed with saliva that have not been chewed up fully so that they could be swallowed. They're a bit bigger than a rabbit dropping, but they are kind of ground up balls like that on the ground that they have just dropped out of their mouth. And we call those quids. You talked a little bit about saliva, but what role does saliva play for the horse in their digestive system? Well, saliva is really important and it has multiple functions at different points in the in the beginning of the digestive process. So it, number one, is going to help to lubricate. You're going to mix saliva in with that food so that when they swallow it, it lubricates the throat so that they can actually swallow and not choke on it. So if you have a horse that eat, tends to eat quickly and doesn't masticate their food well and therefore is not adding enough moisture to the food, then we often recommend that you wet that food. And you're kind of playing the role of the saliva mixing in so that then when they're swallowing it, that's lubricating the throat. And then when it gets down into the stomach, the saliva has certain enzymes in it and it has a certain pH and it will actually help to buffer the stomach acid along with that food that they're swallowing will help to also dilute that stomach acid. It plays multiple roles in the beginning of the digestive process. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's really important. And so next we have the esophagus and you kind of alluded Mm -hmm. to it a little bit with choke, but what can go wrong with the esophagus if it's, you know, if it isn't properly go through that part? I guess the the big difference between people and horses is that 
If I am choking on my food, I also cannot breathe. And so it is life or death. I have got to get that out of my throat so that I can continue to breathe. The horse, though, they can still breathe. But what happens is that food, either they've chewed it too quickly and it hasn't mixed with enough saliva. They had poor dentition, so they weren't physically able to chew it properly. And then that food that's not properly broken down gets stuck in their throat and they can still breathe, but they're constantly coughing and straining to try and dislodge it. And then the worst case scenario is in that process of coughing and breathing is they actually inhale that food down into their lungs and it causes like a secondary pneumonia. I think one of the big myths is that there is a certain type of food that is going to cause a horse to choke. And it really is more any foods. A horse can choke on any food. It's about how they eat. Do they eat really quickly so they're not naturally mixing with enough saliva? Or are they? do they have terrible teeth so that they're physically not able to grind that food and mix it with saliva? So it's more about feed, uh, how they're eating and feeding behavior versus what you're actually feeding them. But then you've got to think about the esophagus is also a muscular tube. It's not like they swallow food and it just drops down the esophagus into the stomach. There are what we call peristaltic contractions. There are tiny little muscles that are constantly pushing, and this is all the way through the digestive system, but they're pushing, 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 contracting, contracting, pushing down, pushing that food down the esophagus. Now, unlike biceps or quad muscles or muscles in the horse's hindquarters that you can develop, you can strengthen those. These just have a, a, a strength and you can't strengthen them. You can't make them stronger or weaker. And I should say you probably can make them weaker. If the horse has chronically choked, then it's probably going to damage some of the lining in their esophagus. But if you're choking, that those muscles can't just get stronger and push the food down. So they only have a certain capacity for pushing that food down. So we need to make sure that they're, number one, eating slowly so they can mix it with saliva. And if we know that they eat fast or they have poor teeth so that they can't chew and masticate properly, we add water to help take up some of that slack. Well, and you can compare it to, you know, feeding your kids, right? Because at some point, they learn to chew things up better. But even as an adult, if you don't chew something properly, you're going to choke. So exactly. So talk to us about the stomach and the role that it plays in digestion. Oh, and the stomach is really the first place that we get digestion. I mean, we've got some enzymes in the mouth that are starting, but we've ground it, we've dropped it down into the stomach. And now we have, the stomach has two distinct regions. And if you can imagine what a, a kidney bean or a black bean looks like, how it's got kind of a bump on the top and the bump on the bottom, and the esophagus goes in the top bump, and then the small intestine goes out the bottom bump of the bean. And right across the middle of that bean, probably maybe more like two-thirds down, there's a line, and we call it the margo placatus. And underneath that, so the bottom part of the stomach, is what we call the glandular region and or glandular mucosa. And it is protected by this slippery slimy mucus coating that protects that tissue from acid because there's little cells, parietal cells in the bottom of that stomach that secrete acid continually. And that acid is there to break down the food. So it's very important that we have acid there, but it's also important to maintain it 
and the right pH. So that's the that's a measure of acidity, how strong or weak that acid is. And the top part of that stomach, above the margoplicatus, if you look at an actual photograph, that top section, which we call the squamous mucosa, it is a light pink, almost furrier tissue. And the bottom part is a dark pink, slimy tissue. Because there's no acid being secreted in the top section, and really acid should not be splashing up into that section if the world is perfect. But unfortunately, what happens in our modern day programs is horses don't eat enough hay or, you know, they have to fit into our schedule. So maybe we come home in the afternoon and we don't feed them anything because we want to get on and quickly ride before the sun goes down. And that acid may have built up and built up in the stomach. And then it splashes up onto that non-protected region when you exercise the horse and you're squeezing the muscles and squeezing the stomach. And so gastric ulcers, stomach ulcers, which primarily occur right above that margoplicatus in the squamous mucosa, are one of the most common problems we have in our performance horses. And when I use the term performance horse, it means exercising horse. Don't feel because you don't go to you know high-level shows and win blue ribbons that your horse isn't under the same stresses. So anything that exercises can be at risk from gastric ulcers. Right. So it could be if you're going to just your local barrel racing show or an inventing show or even just trail riding. Exactly, exactly. And we do know that even horses' foals can have transient gastric ulcers, and that's sometimes more of a stress-related issue. Or if you look at herd dynamics, the horse at the top of the pecking order in your herd and the horse at the bottom of the pecking order. The ones in the middle seem to kind of hang out and be fine. But if you're the weakest one, you're really stressed. And if you're the most dominant one, you're really stressed. And I think we could probably see that in our own uh, communities as well. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then to kind of alleviate some of those, the issue with gastric ulcers or prevent them, that's just giving more frequent access to forage, right? Well, if we think about, okay, if we think about why we're doing this presentation to describe how it's supposed to work and then how it fails and how do we go back. So how it's supposed to work is that the horse will graze for about 17 hours out of the day or chew on something. And when they chew, they produce saliva and that saliva helps to buffer the stomach acid. The food that they're swallowing, that fiber that they're swallowing, actually dilutes the stomach acid, but it also physically forms a mat that sits on top of the acid so that it won't splash around, okay? So that's how it's meant to work. Now we go into a situation where the horse has gastric ulcers, and most likely he's being meal-fed, high-grain diets, maybe not getting enough forage, and even if he is getting the kind of gold standard of two, two and a half percent of his body weight in forage, but he's eating it all really quickly. He's eating and he's got more than four hours during the day where he's just standing there doing nothing with nothing to eat other than the bedding in the stall. Or we're riding our horses on an empty stomach. You know, all of these things cause gastric ulcers. So don't ride your horse on an empty stomach. Feed it something, bit of hay. And then what else can help buffer the acid so that it's not so strong and causing these burn marks or ulcers? If we go back to high school chemistry or biochemistry and we take an acid like lemon juice and we want to make it less acidic, more neutral, then you're going to add a base to it. And what would be a base would be calcium. Where in our feeding program of horses do we find calcium? 
in alfalfa. Okay, so adding alfalfa to the diet will help to neutralize that acid and bring it out of being super strong and damaging to a more healthy range with a pH of, say, four. So when we you measure body weight with pounds or kilograms, depending on where you are in the world, we measure acidity with the unit pH. And a one or a two is very, very strong acid. A seven is water, neutral. And then we go to the all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we've got, you know, a a pH of 14, and that is going to be very basic, like ammonia, right. bleach. Okay. Excellent. And so after the stomach comes the small intestine, what is the purpose of the small intestine and how does it work? So the small intestine is now we have enzymatic digestion. So we no, no longer have any acid in here. We don't have a lot of microbes in here doing fermentation. Now we have enzymes that are going to continue to break down the food. We have a lot of uh, carbohydrates, i.e. sugars and starches. And then we have proteins and fats, um, some vitamins and minerals, all being broken down and absorbed here in the small intestine. Now, small intestine is about 70 feet in length. And if you can visualize a garden hose, it's kind of like that. It's not very wide in its diameter. It's very, very long and it all squiggles up in there. But one of the enzymes in the small intestine is amylase. And we know that amylase is responsible for breaking down starch, which we get from cereal grains. And we know that there's not a lot of amylase at any given time in the small intestine. So this is another reason why we don't like to feed large grain meals to horses, because if that grain, which is going to be broke primarily, you know, broken down here in the small intestine by that amylase, if it's not broken down properly here, then that starch from those cereal grains is going to flow through into the hindgut and be rapidly fermented and cause problems. So we want to make sure that we're, number one, feeding small meals because of the size of the stomach. It's quite small and we don't want to overload it. Certainly the horse isn't going to throw up or explode, but it will just flow out of the stomach really quickly as well and not be you know, have the acid attack it and break it down as much as it should. And then it's get to, get to the small intestine. And then we also want to make sure that if we are feeding cereal grains to horses, that they should be processed so that we give that amylase the best possibility of breaking down those starch molecules. If you think about, again, I, I love visuals. And so if you think about the starch molecules and things like corn or barley, they're they're like diamonds. They're super, super strong and they're hard to break down unless you've pre-processed them, like rolled the corn, flaked the corn, rolled the barley. Oats, we say, is that one of the safest grains to feed because the starch molecules in oats are pretty weak anyway, so it's easy for that amylase to break it down. And they have that fibrous seed coat as well. But that's a little bit about the small intestine. No, that's wonderful. So does it matter what you feed your horse first then, since you're talking about if a, if the grain gets pushed through quicker than it has time to break down from the amylase, does it matter? You know, there have been studies looking at digestion, rate of passage, if you feed hay first or grain first. And I don't think that there's really any clear evidence one way or the other. What I will say is if you have a horse that tends to choke because they eat really quickly, I like to feed them the hay first. That's going to slow them down. It's going to make them realize, 
oh, I'm being fed. They're not starving me. Because, you know, we, yeah, we come back every day and feed them, but they are routine, routine animals. And if your routine is not like spot on, they can stress out, especially if we have horses on kind of a weight loss program, then they're thinking they're being starved. So with those horses, I feed the hay first. It mentally gets them to chill out, slow down. And then by the time we get to the grain, they're not as anxious about the meal. And so they will chew it properly. And what can you tell us then about the cecum? So the cecum is the beginning of what I what we call the hindgut. So from the cecum all the way back to the rectum, it's all bacterial fermentation, bacterial microbes. This is the start of the hindgut. And so the cecum is a blind sack. It's like a balloon and the door in and out is at the exact same place. So it can sometimes be easy for gas to build up in here because and food to get stuck in here. What's very interesting is food can pass through the stomach in as little as 30 minutes. Now, it's not always that quick, but as little as 30 minutes. Food up to in the small intestine, food can take up to three to four hours. But when we get to the cecum, it's seven hours rate of passage to get through this balloon-shaped organ. And so it starts to show you how long it takes for the fiber digesting, all these bacteria to work to break down the fiber. But here is the beginning of the hindgut. Okay. And then what is the large colon and its function? So then we move on to the large colon again, another part, the largest part of the hindgut, again, full of all kinds of different living organisms that we collectively call the microbiome. Some call it the second brain because it has so much influence over the rest of the body and can also be impacted by external environmental and if whether you change the feed or the change the weather, stress the horse, all of these things can affect those bacteria and microbes. But here we have, you know, if we say that the horse should eat between two and two and a half percent of their body weight, so for a thousand pound horse, we're eating 20 to 25 pounds of, of forage or fiber per day. This is where it's being broken down and digested. This is where it's being fermented. And we have byproducts of that fermentation, like volatile fatty acids that are going to provide energy and other nutrients to the animal. Those bacteria will also create heat, things like B vitamins, vitamin K. These are us a byproduct of, of breakdown of that fiber. But this is, to me, the most important part of the horse's digestive system. I mean, every single part is important. We need to have all of them in line. But this has the most sway over the animal. It is the largest part. Mm -hmm. Like the hub. This is the hub right here of the digestive okay. system. And unfortunately, when people feed, they, they fall into this trap of, I want my horse to gain more weight, I'll gain more weight. And they feed less and less fiber and more and more grain because by weight, grains do have more calories than most fibers. And what they end up doing, though, is shutting off the hindgut altogether and just functioning on the stomach and small intestine. And so the horse is eating copious amounts of grain but not gaining any weight because you've pretty much turned off 75% of the digestive system. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And so when you talk about the horse's gut microbiome, mm -hmm. is that housed here in the large colon? Yeah. So the microbiome is in the gut microbiome, because there's microbiomes everywhere, but the gut microbiome is in cecum, large colon, small colon, into the rectum, 
that is the gut microbiome. Now, there's a microbiome on the whole skin. There's a microbiome. There, there's everywhere. But And then what is the small colon and how does it differ from the large colon? It's about the same length, actually, 10 to 12 feet, but it is much, much smaller in diameter. So we go from the cecum being about 9 to 12 inches across, but it's only 4 feet long. The large column, about 10 to 12 feet, but it's 8 to 10 inches in diameter. So it's kind of big and it allows for a lot of fermentation to occur in there, big volumes. And then the small colon, same length, but it's only about 3 to 4 inches in diameter. So we're back down to kind of the small intestine. And we're really just ex- absorbing excess moisture out of non-digested fiber materials, forming fecal balls that are stored here that will eventually be excreted. And you've mentioned a couple already But let's chat a little bit more about some additional issues that can arise with the digestive system when it's not working properly. You mentioned gastric ulcers when we were talking about the stomach. How are colonic ulcers different and what can cause them? So colonic ulcers are primarily in different sections of the large colon. And similar things will cause the uh, colonic ulcers feeding too much grain, not feeding enough fiber, stressing the horse, simple things like trailering. All of these things stress the horse, change in diet, weather. All of these things can stress the horse. But what makes the symptoms of hindgut ulcers much more pronounced is look at the size that we're dealing with now. The stomach is relatively small. And I know most of our listeners have been around a horse that's had a gastric ulcer and the stomach is really small and you put two or three ulcers in the stomach and all of a sudden the horse has completely changed its behavior. It went from a calm mare to being crazy. And so then you take this large colon, put ulceration all through that tissue. They'll lose weight. They're really past the point of exaggerated behavior to lethargy. You know, they're very uncomfortable and it's just depressing. Not able to absorb nutrients because that microbiome is also damaged. Call it dysbiosis, where that's an altered microbial or, or organism population. So yeah, the hindgut also certainly have more serious symptoms in the horse, really more colic-like symptoms, depressed. Yeah. And then there are a couple types of colic that can occur due to digestive issues. We've got impaction colic and gas colic. How do they differ and what can we do to minimize those two different types of colic? Yeah, and I, I would I know you mentioned it, but I would start to say these are two types of colics out of a lot. thousands of types. Maybe there's not thousands, but there are so many different types of colics. And, you know, you may horse that has the first very rare type of colic. I mean, there's colic everywhere. Just really means colic, the word really just means gut pain. But when it comes to impaction colic, I typically see that the most in the fall in a lot of our horses. And it's gone from a an environment of a lot of moisture in the diet to, you know, maybe they're eating fresh grass and they're drinking plenty because it's the summer and I'm drinking a lot because it's hot. And then we start to get some colder days and I don't want to drink as much water and we're eat, feeding them more hay. It's a shift in hydration status of the gut. And that food just gets stuck in there. Or we have really haze or forage types that are very high in those non-digestible fiber fractions, and it's really hard to break that down. These are common causes of impaction colic, and it really is that the food just gets stuck 
in there and there's not enough moisture to keep pushing it along. Okay. And gas colic? Gas colic is probably a lot more common. And that, you know, those bacteria and the microbes that make up that microbiome, one of the byproducts they make when they're unhappy is gas. You know, every horse has a certain amount of gas and that is normal. And if they don't have gas, then that's also unhealthy. But if your horse, if you know what's normal for your horse and then all of a sudden they've got a lot more gas, maybe loose manure, maybe some other symptoms, you know, something's going on here. So, what is being excreted, at least it's getting out of the system. But for whatever is being excreted, there's also stuff that the gas that's being building up. If you can visualize in your mind that the large colon, it's very fluffy and there's a lot, there's kind of a seam down it. And then imagine it's very easy for areas of it to fill up with gas and there's only a certain amount of space in the horse's kind of body cavity. And so if we fill up one area and then it moves and then we can turn that into strangulation colic because if that ga- if the gas made the intestine move and then it twists on itself and we cut off blood flow. So gas colic is really just buildup of gas in the, in the hindgut and it can be very painful. I mean, anybody who's had a newborn baby that cries incessantly and they say it's colic, it's in babies, it's gas colic. And you mentioned something that it could almost be like a little bit of a mantra for you, but you say it so often and I think it's good for people to hear is knowing and understanding what's normal for your horse so you can recognize when things become abnormal and be able to more easily identify those situations to be able to get your horse help sooner when they need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know yourself, like, okay, I exercise a lot. I know I don't sweat a lot. And I know other people that sweat profusely. So if I go to the gym and all of a sudden one day I am sweating a lot, then something's different. That's not normal for me. And it's the same with your horse. You need to know what is your horse's normal heart rate? What is their normal respiration rate? um, What is their normal pulse? Like what are all the normal temperature, normal signs for your horse? Because then you know if it's elevated or depressed, you know that that's not normal for your horse because horses are so genetically diverse that we can't all, we can't across the board say every horse has this respiration rate. And if it's different, then there's something wrong with your horse because they're all very different. So it's very, very important. And especially if you manage a barn and you've got a wide variety of horses, that each stall, that when as an, as an incoming horse, you get all those baseline measurements and each stall would have that, that this is their normal. because so it really helps the vet too. When they come, and especially if it's a new vet that's not used to treating this horse, if you can say their normal pulse is, their normal temperature is, the normal respiration rate is, then they can say, wow, it is three times that. Something is really going wrong. But if your horse already has a pretty high temperature and that's just normal for it, then when the vet comes and oh, okay, well, it's only, you know, a little bit higher than normal, so it's not a big deal. So I think it's very important. Are there any particular types of horses? So like any certain breeds or maybe at certain physiological stages or anything like that, that may be more prone to developing, you know, any of these different kinds of ulcers or colic? Or is it really more about management? I think it's more about management. 
and how much stress the horse is under. And we can certainly say that young horses are developing and maybe they're going through training programs and they're naive to a lot of stimulus. So they might be more easily stressed because these are just things they haven't come across in their life yet. But we also know as far as digestion, the young horses developing their digestive capacity, they're developing their microbiome. And the old horse, everything's just starting to get a little bit more depressed and a little decreased. So we know kind of as from a digestive capacity standpoint, I kind of treat young horses and old horses the same as far as, you know, do I need to add a digestive health supplement or do I need to make sure I'm feeding really digestible sources of fiber? But I think other than that, most of the disorders we see in horses are management-based. That being said, I did get a question the other day from a group, is there a genetic component to kind of problems in the gut? And if we think about irritable bowel syndrome or any of the digestive disorders in people, there are certain genetic markers that seem to be common within families that uh, have these disorders. So I certainly think there's a genetic component to it as well. But in the horse world, we don't select horses based on the fact that they don't colic or they don't get stomach ulcers. We select them based on coat color or speed or disposition, maternal instincts. We certainly don't select them based on, oh, this horse never had colic. It's going to be great to breed to this other horse that's never had colic because there's just so many other factors that play into it too. But I think there is a genetic component. Okay. Well, and when you talk about modern day horse ownership though too, there are so many things that we do with our horses that lend to the management side that that alone can probably alleviate a lot of those issues. Absolutely. I mean, making sure that... We have forage available to them. Remember, the horse in the wild would would graze for about seventeen hours out of the de- out of a twenty four hour period. I know from research looking at the pH of the stomach that we don't want the horses to be without something to chew on for more than four hours because that increases the inflammation in the stomach lining and it really decreases the the pH, so it increases the acidity adding alfalfa to the diet. I mean, if you have a horse that already tends to be a little bit more nervous, then making sure sometimes I find putting them on the end of the barn instead of in the middle where all the chaos is can help decrease some of that stress. There's research on different music, whether horses like music or they like the radio, where they're just listening to people's voices. There's so many things that differ in horse operations. No two horse operations are the same, but if you can go into five different poultry operations or pig units across the country and they're going to be the same because all the animals are genetically the same and their level of success or their measure of success is the same. And so they know if I house them and if I manage them this way, they're going to be happier and they're going to supply me with whatever my my output of desire is. Horses, we don't have any of that. People have very differing management opportunities and styles. So yeah, horses are... Right. No, and you just mentioned a lot of, you know, great opportunities there of where we can adjust management and make sure we're doing the best for the horse and their digestive system. So that's excellent. And you talked a little bit about this when you were um, mentioning the small intestine, but where are the different nutrients absorbed 
throughout the digestive system? Well, primarily, the fiber is going to be fermented in the hindgut. But outside of that, we're going to be and fermented and broken down into those volatile fatty acids and, and other nutrients. But proteins and fats are going to be digested primarily in the small intestine. Those soluble, the sugars and starches should be in the small intestine, but some do flow over into the hindgut. Calcium, magnesium, phosph- magnesium, sorry, primarily these are going to be in the small intestine. Um, phosphorus flips a bit because a lot of the horse's phosphorus comes from forage and that's going to be more in the hindgut. And then most of our vitamins, both places. So you have a PhD in equine nutrition and reproduction. What was one of the most surprising or interesting things that you learned about equine nutrition during your years of schooling that kind of fascinated you or just surprised you? Oh, that is a loaded question. That's so much. You know, there's probably a lot, but if there's anything that kind of comes to your mind. I will say that I was drawn to nutrition because it has so much impact on the health and well-being and performance of the horse. It is the thing that can make or break the outcome of the horse. And a horse needs to be fed every single day. And what you feed it has so much impact. So I could say that I was drawn to equine nutrition because of its impact. Going through grad school and going through my PhD, I can't think of one thing that was like, oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. I would say that I am constantly fascinated by the things that people feed their horses and the things that pop up are more in my life as an equine nutritionist. I'm constantly amazed, shocked sometimes at things that people do. Most people feed horses from their heart and they love these animals, sometimes to death. And they don't do anything maliciously. And they really are trying their very, very best to do everything right. And sometimes we still fall down a rabbit hole because we go online and try to find what we should do. But So I don't know whether I can really answer your question about something in grad school. It's been a while. I feel like it was only yesterday, but it has been a while. When you think back on it, you're like, oh. So what do you feel is maybe the most misunderstood thing by horse owners when it comes to feeding horses and their digestive system, just based off of your experience with clients and working with horse owners? I don't know whether I would call it a misunderstanding, but more of a undervaluing of the forage that you feed a horse. And I'm not just saying that because we're Stan Lee and we sell forage, any of my clients, and I work with lots of different people. If you just go on the digestive system and how it was built and what it is primarily designed to digest, it's fiber. Horses in the wild don't eat large amounts of grain. I mean, they don't have us riding them or anything like that either. So we have been forced to add other things to the diet. But I think that people don't put enough emphasis or value in choosing the correct forage. And even if you're in a situation where you don't get a choice on the forage, You need to know exactly what you're getting from the forage so that then you can build your diet around that because small differences, like if you're feeding a supplement of one to two ounces of whatever it is, changes in one to two ounces in the grand scheme of your horse's diet are probably not going to make or break a lot. But if there are small changes in the hay 
that you're feeding your horse, that can have large consequences. If we change the energy by one or two megacals per pound and your horse is eating 20 to 25 pounds a day, that's significantly different. And you think, well, I buy my hay from the same guy every year and he grows it on the same fields, but we and we assume it's always the same, but we actually do a hay test on it and it's not. And you're like, oh, wow, I've been spinning my wheels trying to find a different feed for my horse when really it was my hay that was falling short. So I think people don't value the forage portion of their diet enough, and they don't put enough emphasis and education into that part of the diet. That's good to know. I feel like we've talked about a lot of different things today. And as we begin to wrap this episode up, what are a few takeaways that you would like to leave our listeners with from today's conversation? I think that it's important to always, no matter what disorder, whether you're dealing with a horse with insulin resistance or laminitis or metabolic syndrome or tying up or or colic or gastric ulcers, in order to properly fix the problem, you have to know how the system works. So if you're looking to learn a bit more about your horse and you want to do some Googling, then start with the basics of the digestive system. Learn how that's supposed to work. Then you will understand that I'm not just kind of promoting forage for no reason, you know that that is the most important part of the horse's diet. So we need to put a lot more emphasis there. And I think that a lot of the disorders, especially gastric ulcers, they are inflicted by us. And small tweaks in management can really have huge impacts on your animal. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Cubitt. And for our listeners, If you have any feedback or if you have any topic ideas that you would like to share with us, please feel free to reach out to us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. We love to hear from you all. And if you're an Apple listener, we'd also love if you would leave us a review. It helps others know what to expect from our podcast, and it helps them to learn a little bit more about what we discuss and if it's something they might be interested in listening to as well. So, Dr. Cubit, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. I have a little a little tidbit. So I get so excited about doing these podcasts and chatting with you. And and the listeners probably sometimes think, wow, she's crazy. She's just talking a lot and she's talking so fast. I just got myself one of these new fancy watches that has health metrics on it. And I just glanced at it while you were doing that wrap up there. And my heart rate is slowly going down. So my heart rate was going up. So I'm because I'm so excited about talking about nutrition and digestion. So there you go. That's just a little funny story. That's so funny. Well, see, now you have that so you can know what your normal is and then understand the things that get you wound up. (laughs) Get me excited. Yes. Screaming at my kids, (laughs) doing these. They get me excited. That's so funny. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cubit. Today was an awesome conversation. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.